0: About for a word of prayer, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of fellowship, singing that you've allowed us to have together here. God, now as we open your Word, we pray that uh, you would speak to us through it, that you would communicate who you are, that you would communicate to us who we are. God, that we would find the encouragement and the strength to represent you well in every circumstance, in every situation to live out lives that truly reflect um, the idea, the reality that we believe your word. Help us to be different, God. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So this week I learned a new word. And as a... uh, person who loves words, that's always a good thing, and I probably should have known this word. I was an English minor in college, so this word should have probably already been in my vocabulary, but for some reason, either I just totally forgot it, which is possible, or I just never encountered it, and it's the word contronym. Contronym. Anybody know what that word means? Okay, so I'm not alone in learning a new word. That's great. That's great. Okay, a contronym is a single word that has two contradictory meanings. Okay, one word has two contradictory meanings. So, for instance, the word to bolt. Okay, that can mean to secure something, bolt it down, or to flee, running away. Okay, those are two opposite ideas, secure versus running away. To cleave, okay, can mean to hold on to something. Okay. Hold tightly to something. Or to what? To separate. Okay? Uh, To to be fast. Okay? That can mean uh, to be quick. Or it can mean to be stuck. Okay? Now, why does this word matter? Because it goes with our topic today and the series that we're starting today. Because the series we're starting today is on apologetics. And the word apology is a contronym, okay? It can mean to express contrition for a belief or action. In other words, I'm sorry for what I believe. I'm sorry for what I did. Or it can express the idea of giving a defense to defend yourself for a belief or an action. Two very different ideas. And it's that latter definition. To give a defense of what you believe, that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks in terms of what our beliefs are as Christians and how do we defend them to a world that's sometimes skeptical, that sometimes uh, challenges us. I want to start this morning with uh, a passage of Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It's a passage that's at the center of this whole idea of why we even do this as Christians. It's a passage that reveals that apologetics has been a part of the Christian faith, ever since the Christian faith has existed. Peter writes in uh, verse 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now that, that phrase where he says, always be prepared to make a defense. The Greek word behind that is apologia. That's where we get the word apology in how we're using it today, to be able to give a defense of what you believe. And it's an important part of our Christian faith, to be able to know why we believe what we believe, and to be able to answer those who have questions about why we believe it. It's a a part of, of who we've been from the beginning. And it's important to realize as we begin today that apologetics itself as a discipline has changed over time, depending upon the culture that's being addressed. Just let me give you an example from history. Justin Martyr was a, a church father. He lived about the middle of the 2nd century, about 150 A.D. And, and he uh, was known for his apologies, his his writings that we have with us today are called his first apology and his second apology, and so forth. And he argued in his first apology that Christianity was not a threat to the Roman world by comparing Christianity to the Roman myths and the Roman religion, talking about the similarities between Christianity and the Roman mythology. Now, if you've lived or, or interacted with Christians through the 20th century, you know that Christians have spent a lot of time in the 20th century trying to distinguish Christianity from Roman religions. To say we're not like them, we're very different. And, and what is behind that idea is the reality that philosophies change. worldviews change. How people understand truth, even, to some degree, changes. And so the arguments that you use are They're going to be different depending upon who you're talking to. And and in your particular case, in our particular case, we live in one of those times in history that is all about change. You live in one of those places in history that's a part of a philosophical shift. And that can be scary because things look very different. As you're moving through the shift. And, and the shift that I'm talking about is the move from modernism to postmodernism. Okay? That's where we live. We're right there at the very beginnings of postmodernism, which means there's still a lot of people around who would fall under the mindset, the perspective, the outlook of modernists. And, and that difference is a big part of a lot of the tension that we feel today. Because a postmodernist will use a phrase such as, well, that's your truth, okay? And a modernist will respond with, no, that's the truth, okay? That's that's one of the, the differences between the two mindsets and perspectives. And so when you're talking about apologetics, when you're talking about defending your faith, when you're talking about answering those people who have questions about Christianity, you really have to be aware of who you're talking to because how you answer somebody who's in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s who are modernists is going to be very different than how you answer somebody who's in their 20s or 30s or in their teens who are postmodernists by and large. Okay? And it can get real confusing. But I don't want it to be confusing. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the issue of the trustworthiness of scripture. Okay? Because I believe that's kind of the starting point for all the other uh, apologies we're going to offer. All the other defenses we're going to offer is the Bible trustworthy. Is it something we can lean on? Is it something we can respond to? And as we do that, I I want us to keep in mind three things that make a good apologist. And I I stole these three things from a a scholar named Myron Pinner. And, And Dr. Pinner had, had these, these three things that he argues makes a good apologist. And I'm convinced they line up very well with what Peter has to say there in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, number one, a good apologist has to have a capacity for dialogue. That is, you have to be able to not only talk, but what? Listen. You have to be able to listen. And, and I think Peter communicates that when he says, do it with gentleness. Give a defense of your faith with gentleness. We've become a culture that's almost forgotten what gentleness looks like. From our leaders all the way down, gentleness has gone out the window. But it's a very important part of how we speak to people and how we communicate where we're at and we learn where they're at. It's a very important part of beginning to discuss the whole dialogue of what it means to be a believer and what are the the essential components of being a believer. People don't listen when you don't listen. And so we need to have that capacity for dialogue. Secondly, need to have cultural awareness. That is, you don't have to be an expert in the culture. You don't have to be embedded in the different cultures of postmodernism and modernism but you need to be aware of it. You need to be aware that those differences exist. And I believe this comes out where Peter talks about respect. Okay, You may see the world very differently than someone else. You may argue a point very differently than someone else. But you can still respect what they have to say. And I think that's a very important component Again, of sharing our faith, defending our faith. If you're talking to somebody and you don't respect them, how on earth do you expect them to respect you? To listen to you? To even give you a hearing? The third thing he says you need is a sufficient knowledge of the Bible and its theology. Okay? This is at the heart of what Peter has to say here. Being prepared by acknowledging that Christ is holy, to be able to make a defense. Again, this doesn't mean you have to be an expert in the Bible and all its contents. A lot of times when we start talking about being an apologist or responding to people's doubts and fears, we we get our own fear about the fact, well, man, I just don't think I know enough to answer them. I don't think I know enough to respond to what they're saying. You don't have to be an expert. You just have to have Christ in your heart, functioning, working, guiding you. Okay, We talked about this a little bit Wednesday night. We're going through Matthew. We talked about being the light of the world. and One of the things that, that Jesus points out there that, that I highlighted was, you can't give what you don't have. Okay. You can't share with somebody the power and the truth of Scripture if you yourself are not living the power and truth of Scripture. You can't share with them the difference that Scripture can make if Scripture has not made a difference in your life. And so, a big part of being able to to present, to argue, to to put forth the truth of the trustworthiness trustworthiness of Scripture is to yourself be walking in the truth of the trustworthiness of Scripture, living it out, applying it, getting past those things that. would be a barrier to sharing your faith with someone else. And so I want to pick up right there with, with those three elements and, and bring them to bear in terms of the passage that's uh, posted there, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. This is a passage that is almost always used. When you start talking about the trustworthiness of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, that, that it is something that we rely on, that's something we build our life around. This is a passage almost everybody goes to, in particular, verse 16. But we're going we're to deal with it all. Beginning in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I think as we look at what Paul has to say here, and how he communicates this, and we bring it into the realm of apologetics. I think there's three aspects to conversations that that might take place in terms of defending the trustworthiness of Scripture. Three things, three areas, if you will, that we can draw on to help us as we interact with others. The first of these aspects is dialogue. Having a conversation with somebody. Speaking to them respectfully, gently, as we've already talked about. Not in a, not in a, in a sense or from a mindset that we're trying to trick them or, or trying to trap them, but in a sense to where we're actually trying to understand where someone's coming from and to help them understand where we're coming from. A few weeks ago, we lost one of our leading apologists uh, in the Christian world. His name was Rabbi Zacharias. And, and and Robbie Zacharias, he was a, he was a gentle man. He was a man who would go onto campuses and talk with students. Um, though he was from a very different generation from them, he listened, he responded, he interacted with them, he engaged them in um, the questions that they had. Questions that um, sometimes I, I've watched several of the videos, and sometimes when those questions are asked, I'm like. How's he going to respond to that in a respectful way? And yet, he found a way to do it. He always found a way to do it. And he had basically three responses that that he would use in his dialogue with people as the discussion of the trustworthiness of Scripture began. He had three three kind of go-tos that he had. And he said the, the first of these was when someone asked why trust the Bible, I would often ask them, Why not trust the Bible? One can really only doubt something if one has something more solid to believe in. In other words, a lot of people just dismiss the Bible because that's what their culture has said. That's what their parents have said. That's what they think is, is, you know, quote, the educated thing to do, is just to dismiss the Bible. And they don't really know the content. They don't really know what it says. They don't really know what's going on there. They just say, I'm done with it. Why should I trust it? But to live life that way is, is contrary to growth. It's contrary to any sort of, of understanding of how life and knowledge itself is gained. You don't gain knowledge through doubting everything that's presented for you. You gain knowledge by asking questions, honest questions, but by looking at and digging into the matter. So we start with the question, why don't you trust the Bible? And again, not to trick them, not to trap them, but to get them to think through the issues. Second, he says, when you hear somebody say that the Bible is full of myths, and that's generally generally the line you'll get. Okay, well, I don't trust the Bible. It's It's just full of myths. Ask them, can you give me an example? It's a simple question. Can you give me an example of the type of myth that you're talking about? I'm to guess most people who use that phrase, use that line, the Bible's full of myths, can't give you a single example of what they mean. They just simply can't. They've never really thought through it, but they've heard that phrase, they've heard that line so many times that that becomes their go-to. Third, ask them, relate to them this issue of chronological snobbery. In other words, ask them, are you saying that just because something is old or ancient that it has to be false? Because that's generally where people go. I I, I see it on, on message boards and other conversations that I've had. Why would I... Rely on something that comes from the Late Bronze Age or the Iron Age or or whatever age that they have to pinpoint that the Bible fell within. And and that's a question that I ask. Are you saying just because it's old, it automatically has to be false? I mean, because I can point to a lot of things that are new that are false. Okay? So is that really a fair assessment of Scripture? And so this, this first stage, this first aspect of, of talking with people is simply asking the most basic of questions, just simply relating to them and, and listening to them in terms of what they have to say, and, and going from what they say into uh, the other two aspects. The second aspect of our conversations on apologetics concerning the Bible is consulting the experts. Now, this one again might be uh, more than you than you think it is. I'm not asking you to memorize all the experts' views or or issues concerning the scripture. There, there's there's really only kind of three things that you need to remember when it comes to the trustworthy scripture. Number one, the sources. The number of sources we have for the accuracy of scripture, the trustworthiness of scripture, is astounding. One of the things you'll often hear when people talk about Scripture is, why would I believe something that's been changed so many times? I don't know how many times I've encountered that phrase. Why would I believe, why would I trust a text that's been changed so many times? And I will say, what do you mean it's been changed? What is your evidence for change? Because I can show you, I can show you 5,000 Greek manuscripts full manuscripts of the New Testament that show it hasn't been changed from all over the ancient world from Africa, from the Middle East, from Europe, from Asia Minor, all of that 5,000 manuscripts spread out over all that region from beginning from as early as about two to three hundred AD continuing on for several centuries they all match. they all match. Put on top of that, that we have 32,000 quotes from church fathers of the New Testament before the Council of Nicaea. Now, why do I mention the Council of Nicaea? Now, the Council of Nicaea happened in 325 A.D. It was the first church council. It's called by Constantine. And a lot of people know just enough about it to, to try and use it. And what they'll generally say is something along the lines of, it was at the Council of Nicaea where we got our Bible." That's where they gave us the Bible. And that's where they gave us disbelief about Jesus, and they gave us about all these other things. And and they'll bring out those arguments. And and they act as if they've settled the case, that clearly the Bible started in 300 A.D. But as I said, we have 25, or excuse me, 32,000 quotes from church fathers quoting from the New Testament. Large segments of it that predate Nicaea, that come before it. We have copies of text before that. We have one copy, one papyrus fragment of the Gospel of John that dates to 120 A.D. Now think about that. Most scholars think John, the Gospel of John, was probably written about 90 AD, 90 to 95 A.D., somewhere in there. We have a fragmentary copy of it, not the whole book, but a fragmentary copy of it that dates to 120. That's within 30 years of composition. That's unheard of, y'all. Unheard of. I mean, just think of it in terms of modern, modern expressions, modern, modern thought. If you find a, a book from a 19th century writer today, and it's first edition, it's worth a lot of money. Why? Because it's rare. Okay, first edition books from 19th century authors, even some 20th century authors, are rare. We just don't have them. They've been thrown away, they've been burned, they've been destroyed, different things have happened to them, they're just not kept. And yet we have a fragment from the Gospel of John that's within 30 years of composition from 2,000 years ago. That's amazing. Okay? So you have these expert ideas. You you also have the internal testimony of Scripture. What does it claim to be? What does it claim to say? We have, within the Scriptures, we have at least six sources for the life of Jesus, six witnesses that were there in the same time frame who, who can tell us what happened? You have obviously the four Gospels. That's very clear. You have the Apostle Paul who tells us in Corinthians, there's still 500 people around who can verify what I'm saying about Jesus and his life. I I can go get those 500 people for you right now if you want to. And then you have a source that scholars identify as Q. It's called Q. And, And what Q is is within Matthew and Luke, there are these segments that are identical. And they're they're sermons of Jesus. And what scholars have determined, based upon this and other evidence, is that there was a source that was floating around before Matthew wrote his gospel, before Luke wrote his gospel, before Mark probably wrote his gospel, that was just the sayings of Jesus. It was was sayings that Christians used early on to communicate. This is what Jesus. This is what our Jesus taught. Okay, so you have those six sources. You, you have um, the the earliness of the gospels themselves. James Crossley, who is not a believer, he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Christ, doesn't believe that the New Testament is true. He's a historian. Okay, James Crossley he argues that the Gospel of Mark was probably written in the late 30s, early 40s. When did Jesus die? Somewhere around 30 to 33 A.D. So within a decade of Jesus' death, the Gospel of Mark was written. There is no other ancient document that even comes close to that sort of verification, to that sort of uh, connection to the events. None. Not the annals of Caesar that historians accept without question not the the, the writings of Plato or, or any of the great philosophers. None of our sources for any other ancient document comes within a thousand years of writing. And we have sources for Jesus and the Gospels that are within 30 years of writing. Put all that together with the number of sources, the thousands of copies we have, and you have a lot of support for the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of the New Testament. Bring into that archaeology and how it supports and defends Scripture, and you are blown away by the trustworthiness. Now, archaeology doesn't prove the New Testament is true. It can't. But what it does is it endorses the narratives. It, it lets us see that they fit. They fit into the culture. They fit into the history writing. They, they fit into the, the style of writing, all of those things that we would expect for that time. And so you bring in the experts in your discussion. You dialogue and you ask questions. But third, you look at what the Bible itself has to say. And what the Bible itself says, this passage that we looked at and we read earlier here in 2 Timothy, what does it say should be the heart of our apologetics? What does it say should be the heart of our defense? What does it say should be our disposition towards Scripture? And what it has to say is that at the center of every discussion must be God. He has to be at the heart. And our personal interaction with Him. Paul says here in the Second Timothy passage that the Bible is the source for hearing the voice of God. He says that when it's breathed out, and when it's lived out that makes a difference he starts there in in verse 12 by contrasting two different groups of people those who who uh, are pretenders those who 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 are false followers the, the ones who don't really know Christ but but kind of play with the idea to present a false narrative and he calls Timothy to to be different he calls Timothy to be authentic to be Acquainted with the sacred scriptures that he's heard from his youth. The the priority of the home, the the priority of the text. He's saying that that scripture is the primary means by which God speaks to us. It's primary because it's first in expression. It is his revelation of himself to the world. It's primary because it's first in importance. All other understandings of what God has said must line up with Scripture. We talked about that several weeks ago when we were talking about heaven and these stories that are out there about the nature of heaven and so forth. That whatever they say, if they don't match with Scripture, they're lies. We must function from this mindset. How do we then interpret Scripture? I'm not going to give you a full course on hermeneutics here today, but I I want to point out three things for interpreting Scripture correctly that are important. Because... What i found, when people start talking about contradictions in Scripture, when people start talking about problems in Scripture, and they start talking about errors in Scripture, that most of the time what it falls down to is their failure to correctly interpret Scripture. They're not handling it correctly. And so, just real quickly, three things about interpreting Scripture we need to keep in mind. Number one, remember that there are two voices in every text. There are two authors for every text. There's God, the author, and then there's the human author, the person who penned it, the person who wrote what was there. And we have to keep both of those authors in mind as we interpret. Number one, we need the Holy Spirit to help us understand. If God is the author, we need God to help us understand what he's saying, because he's different than us. He sees things differently than us. He's bigger than us. So we need the Holy Spirit to guide our hearts in our interpretation. But second, we also need rules of interpretation to help us understand the human part of it. What the human writer is getting at, what the human writer is seeing, what the human writer is addressing. To interpret Scripture is not to solely rely on the Holy Spirit. And it's not to solely rely on the rules of interpretation. To interpret Scripture is to see those two things come together and to apply the proper rules and methods, but to do so under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The second thing about interpreting Scripture we need to realize is that it was written for a specific purpose. And this is a big one when it comes to apologetics and so-called errors and and problems. Is that a lot of times people want to apply a standard of understanding or a standard of interpreting or a standard of, of rules that the Bible itself was never trying to address. Never trying to answer. Well, this is how this is how I view the world, and so because I view the world this way, or because modern science views the world this way, or because somebody views the world this way, then I, the Bible has to address it exactly how I view it. That's not fair. That's not fair to anybody to ask somebody to address a situation that they weren't trying to address to 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 bend to a situation. That they weren't trying to accomplish. I think I've used this example before, but just to, to kind of hammer it home, what I'm talking about here, okay, there are lots of different types of poetry. Okay. There's Shakespearean sonnets, and there's you know, there's haiku, and there's there's all sorts of different types. There's some modern poetry that doesn't even rhyme. I don't even get that stuff, but whatever. Okay. There's all sorts of types of poetry. If I were to pick up a haiku, okay, you all know what a haiku is? It's a type of of, uh, oriental poetry that has a specific number of syllables for each line. Three lines. Specific number of syllables. If I were to pick up that type of poetry and I were to say, this is the worst Shakespearean sonnet I've ever read. The person who wrote this clearly did not know poetry and is erroneous in how they wrote this Shakespearean sonnet. That's not fair. They weren't trying to write a Shakespearean sonnet; They were trying to write a haiku. And that's what we find people do with Scripture all the time. Well, this is the worst historiography, or this is the worst science, or this is the worst that, or this is the worst this. And it's not fair. The Scripture wasn't trying to write those things. wasn't trying to address those things. And so we need to understand that the Bible has a specific purpose. Third, We need to realize that it was written in a certain way. And this goes to kind of what I'm just saying. But instead of focusing on purpose, it's style. And that is, just as in types of literature today, the Bible is written in different types of literature. There's poetry. There's prose. There's prophecy. There's apocalypticism. There's history. There's biography. There's, I could go on and on in terms of the types of genres that are present in the Bible. When you're interpreting the Bible, you have to interpret it according to what that particular part of the Bible is writing. You can't read a poetic text and say, well, that's literally wrong. Well, it's not supposed to be literally right. It's poetry. You interpret it according to those rules. So interpreting the Bible, realize two voices. Realize it was written for a specific purpose, and realize it was written a certain way. As we do that, then we'll begin to hear the voice of God. Because it is the voice of God. Secondly, the Bible is the standard for understanding the heart of God. D.L. Moody said this, The Scriptures were not given for our information, but for our transformation. And what is the message of Scripture? The message of Scripture is this. Man is lost, and God has the answer for that. It's the message of salvation from beginning to end through 66 different books, 40 different authors, three different languages, three different continents that the Bible is all composed by and on. It has one overarching message that Jesus Christ is salvation. It starts with the plan for salvation in eternity past. It continues with the need for salvation in the fall. It expresses the path of salvation in the story of God's people, the perfection of salvation in Christ Jesus, and the appropriation of salvation by the believer. That's the outline of Scripture. That's how it flows, that God planned it, that we needed it, that God gave us the path for it, that God perfected it, and now God is calling us to it. That is salvation. That is Scripture. And I want you to understand that when it comes to apologetics, that may be the primary answer you need to use when someone's doubting Scripture, is to say let me tell you what it's done for me. Let me tell you about how God has moved in my life. Let me tell you about the plan of salvation. Let me tell you about how my life was one way and now it's another. And in between those two realities is Jesus Christ revealed in His Word. Let me communicate that to you. That may be at the very heart of who we need to be as apologists. The third thing that Paul says here is that the Bible is the instrument for discovering the mind of God. And he says this in verse 16 when he talks about that it's useful for teaching, for training, for correction, for reproof. He's getting at the very heart of who God is there. And, and what you see in those four categories is really two groups. The first group feeds our minds. When he talks about it, it's, it's useful for teaching and for training. He's talking about doctrine and moral teaching there. He's talking about how God changes our worldview, whether we're a modernist or a postmodernist or whatever we may be, wherever we fall on that spectrum. That Scripture is there to transform our minds. But it also guides our actions. The correction and the reproof. It's moral accountability and doctrinal accountability. That Scripture is there to to measure us. To evaluate us. To judge us. That is Scripture's purpose. And so we learn and we grow. We discern God's will by learning His mind. You want to know what God's will for your life is? Study His Word. And as you learn His Word, as you appropriate His Word, as you apply His Word, you will begin to discover exactly what He wants you to do, how He wants you to do it, and who He wants you to be. Andrew Murray said this, about our disposition towards Scripture. He says it should involve a readiness to believe every promise implicitly, to obey every command unhesitantly, to stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. It is the only true spirit of Bible study. I study the Bible to know God. And at the end of the day, that's where your apology has to go. You can't just simply defend the Bible and say, well, guess I showed them. You have to point them to the reason we have the Bible in the first place, and that is that God desires a relationship with mankind. God has revealed Himself specifically and specially so that we might understand Him. That the unknowable one becomes knowable. That the mysterious one becomes. Relatable. That is who God is. That's how he's revealed himself. The only way we can do that, however, is to get into it. When I travel overseas, I've done it a few times, I've frankly been embarrassed a few times when people have asked, how many Bibles do you have? Because if you go in my office here, my office at work, my office at home, I have dozens of Bibles. Dozens. And I'll ask them, how many Bibles do you have? Our family has one. Or, in a few cases, our community has one. We can go into... Christian bookstore, even a secular bookstore, Barnes & Noble. There will be dozens of different Bible translations on the wall, all designed to do one thing, to help you understand the Bible better, to translate it in a way that you can identify with so that you can apply it and you can walk in it. We have more access to the Bible, to its original expressions, to different ways to understand it and explain it than any society in the history of mankind, and yet our Bibles stay closed. A big part of the reason we're where we're at in our culture today is because Christians have failed to be Christians. And the reason Christians have failed to be Christians is we don't know what that looks like because we don't open the God has given us a precious, special gift when He gave us the Bible. It's not Him, but it points to Him. And so we better be in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come. and We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You haven't left us in the dark about who You are. We're thankful that You haven't left us in the dark about who You'd have us be. Lord, we pray that as we engage our culture, as we witness to them, share with them our story, that at the heart of that is your story. God, help us to develop the skills to respond to those who doubt. Help us to deal with our own doubts, our own concerns, our own fears. Help us to walk with courage. But even more than courage, God, help us to walk with love. It's such a lost commodity today, especially among the church. God, I pray that you would move us, direct us, and guide us. And it's in your son's name we pray.